Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Broadstairs Consulting believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, we've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day, a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes released every Thursday. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. It began at dawn. Thousands of rockets fired skyward from the Gaza Strip into Israel. Militant group Hamas, which governs the territory, here launching a surprise attack. And they have caused significant damage in Israeli cities like Tel Aviv and Ashkelon. The government has declared a state of national emergency. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Palestinian militants from the armed group Hamas launched a surprise coordinated attack on Israel by land, sea, and air on Saturday morning. With hundreds killed, the attack is the largest and deadliest in years, and prompted an Israeli declaration of war. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mid-Atlantic. From a very young age, I've been deeply fascinated by the intricate tapestry of conflict, expulsions, histories, and cultures that intertwine Israel and Palestine. I've always believed in a two-state solution, firmly upholding that the Palestinian people deserve their own state, one that can live alongside an Israel where its citizens can also feel secure and safe. For 75 years, the Palestinians have borne a heavy cost of statelessness, a reality that weighs heavily on the conscience of many people throughout the world. This week, the situation has taken a dark turn with the horrendous attack by Hamas on Israel. 
Friends I've met when I visited Israel back in 2012 are now being called up as IDF reserves. Poised on the brink of an invasion into Gaza, I fear for my friend Natan and Rowan. And of course, my sympathies go out to their families. This episode is a departure from my usual format. I've brought together four distinguished speakers, two Palestinians and two Israelis, to shed light on the events leading up to this tumultuous week. They share their personal experiences, the terror and the fear that has gripped both Israel and Gaza, and the broader implications of these events. Joining me today is Yehuda Mirsky in Jerusalem, a professor of Near Eastern and Judaic Studies. As a former US State Department official, he has penned insightful pieces for the New York Times, The Economist and The Washington Post. From Hebron on the West Bank, we have Dr. Ibrahim Haroub, a professor at Bethlehem University, who specializes in communication around the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Moab Vardi is stationed at the heart of these events. He's the head of the foreign news desk at Israel's public broadcaster, Can 11, and he hosts the daily news show, The World Today. And last but not least, from York in England, we're joined by Mohammed Mansara, an educator and teacher originally from the West Bank. We start with Yehuda Mirsky in Jerusalem, and we go back to the morning when he heard sirens and explosions above his head. This weekend, Hamas launched an unprecedented attack, not only against the state of Israel, but specifically an invasion of southern Israel. Where were you when you got the news? I was at home and we were awakened by sirens, frankly. One of my daughters is away at her school and another one of my daughters and Denise, who was staying with us, we heard the sirens and Every Israeli apartment building that's been built in the last 30 years or so has what's called a protected room. So that's a room with a blast-proof door and reinforced concrete in the walls and a steel window that you can shut. And so we ran right into ours, and we spent much of the morning. Uh, were you able to then follow the news whilst you were in that safe room as to what was happening? Yes, we were. And I need to mention it was Saturday, which is, of course, Shabbat. And it's all, it was also Simchat Torah, which is the last festival of the High Holy Days. Also, for traditional Jews like me, it's a day when you don't use the telephone. However, according to traditional Jewish law, when human life is at stake, you do what you have to do. And so, yes. We turned on the phones and began to call around with people and get a sense of, of what was going on. It's been taking us all a couple of days just to take in the immensity of what's gone on and the scale and the earthquake of mm -hmm. it. This um, is, so w would it be fairly safe to say that up until this attack, internal Israeli politics, society, was at maybe at its most divisive since, let's say, in living memory. Yes. So you were in your safe room, and what was the Israel that you emerged into? You're immediately checking in with everyone to see who's been called up for the army. For instance, I have one nephew who's in active duty, and he's been seeing very intense combat the last few days, and his commander and very close friends were killed. Another nephew of mine was called up, the way he found out about these attacks was his phone rang 
And it was his unit saying, get down here, get down to the south. He is a graduate student in brain science at an Israeli university, but he's an infantryman in the reserves. And now he's down there getting ready to enter Gaza again. We start calling around to see who do we know who's okay, who do we know who's not okay. Over the next day, I found out that two friends of mine had children killed and other friends of mine, their son has been abducted into Gaza and has also lost his arm. So the Israel into which you emerged is one that's, it's a great question. Very shattered, very shaken, also shaken and shaken in several ways. You think the Yom Kippur War was this astounding strategic surprise from which the country is still reeling 50 years later. And you think, my God, it happened again that we were totally taken by surprise. Also, and I know some people would say that what I'm about to say is terribly naive, but we had come to the conclusion that Hamas was not interested in fighting and was slowly making its way towards some kind of political accommodation and solution, right? If the last few rounds of fighting in Gaza were done not by Hamas, but by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and Hamas very deliberately kept out, we now know there was a terrific piece in the New York Times yesterday by Ronan Bergman and uh, Patrick Kingsley that people have figured out that this was part of an elaborate Hamas deception. You know, if Hamas was staying out of those rounds of fighting, people like me thought, oh, I guess that makes sense. They're trying to moderate. They're realizing they have a city-state to run. They need to make normal lives for their people. They're inching within their own ideological constraints. They're trying to work their way towards some kind of accommodation or long-term ceasefire or who knows. And as stories have come out about the sheer savagery and the stories that our grandparents, great-grandparents told about babies being hacked to death in pogroms in Russia, sorts of pogroms that drove my family out of there 120 something years ago and that they were happening again here. And there's one other thing point I have to make that part of why the irony here is so cruel is that those particular communities on the border of Gaza were over the, the Israelis living there were overwhelmingly left. I can tell you a number of the people who were killed are people who were there in no small part because they were involved in coexistence work with Palestinians in Gaza. One of the people who was killed on Saturday, was killed in a firefight, was the head of the local regional council who for years and years made it his life's work to create an industrial park where Israelis and Palestinians could work together. And I suppose that then the logical outcome of Israelis of all political stripes pulling together is that's now been reflected in this national government. According to a poll yesterday, 80% of the country wanted a national unity government. Just out of interest, could you characterize the 20%? Who were those who were dissenting on that? It was like this. The first poll was, are you in favor of a national unity? It was in Ma'ariv newspaper, which is very, very reputable newspaper. The first poll said, do you want a national unity government? 80% yes, 9% no, 11% undecided. Then they asked a follow-up question. Because one of the conditions for the national unity government, and it's a condition that was met, was that the ultra-right 
nationalists, religious nationalists I mentioned earlier, specifically mm-hmm. Bethel Swoodridge and Itamar Ben-Gvir, would not be part of the kitchen cabinet making war decisions. And so then the follow-up question was, what if the only way to have a national unity government is by excluding the ultra-nationalist, right? So then the number shifted from 80% in favor of national unity government to 61%, which tells you that there's about 20% who are hard ultra-nationalists. The, the 9% who originally were opposed were probably the most ultra-nationalist and perhaps the farthest on the Israeli left. You can just see no way of making common cause with the current government in any way. But there's a, a hardcore group of 20%. Does it give people some level of comfort and succor that Benny Gantz, the opposition leader, who's a former army chief, is going to be right. at the heart of government? Yes, the ultimate decisions are going to be made by three people, right? Mr. Netanyahu, the current defense minister, Yoav Gallant, who is also a career general, Mm-hmm. And and Benny Gantz, former chief of staff, also in the room, right? Also in the room will be Ron Dermer, who's a very close ally of, of Netanyahu on strategic issues, and Gadi Eisenkot, who is a also former chief of staff, who is an immensely respected military professional. I think part of the relief here, it's not simply ideological. Yoav Gallant is, um, again, I'm not a military expert by any stretch of anyone's imagination. But Joab Gallant is a highly respected career military officer. It is hard to convey the degree of outlandish amateurishness and worst displayed by the other members of Mr. Netanyahu's coalition these last months. So I think part of the collective sigh of relief is that sitting there on the table will be people who know what they're talking about. So I just want to go on to, to a couple of things. It looks like Israel is poised for a sizable invasion of Gaza. Is that a case of there is no other solution? Clausewitz, in the classic treatise on war, says war is politics by other means. One of the things I was racking my head on with this thing was like my first thought, frankly, my first political thought for what it's worth on Saturday morning was, Oh, okay. This is their way of telling the Saudis, don't you dare make a deal without us. Fine. But as the extent of this came out and the savagery of it comes out, how is one supposed to deal with these folks? Part of what's so awful here is that innocent men and women and children in Gaza are going to be hurt and are going to get killed. That is part of what is so terrible. And and those people are, are being killed by Israeli airstrikes and yes. have been told to evacuate their homes and they had without really having any place to go. Nowhere to they go. are profound victims. Absolutely. They themselves are profound victims. You, you believe that right now the Israeli people are behind its government, a government of national unity. That government has sober heads at the wheel some of them. Yes, or, or, I was like, you know, or, or to qualify it a little bit, Israelis have tremendous faith in the soldiery and the rank and file soldiery. Uh-huh. Because also we saw in the last days, like phenomenal bravery, self-sacrifice, all these Israelis abroad coming back here in order to, okay. to join their reserve units. The jury is still out for much of the Israeli public on a lot of the political leadership. There were members of Mr. Netanyahu's cabinet ministers. He did Sliman, uh, currently the environment minister. 
There was footage on television tonight of she was going to visit a hospital in the South to visit bereaved families and sick people. Mm-hmm. And everybody's, and they chased her out saying, you people have been dividing the country for the last six months. You've destroyed everything. Go away. So there's, again, like at the grassroots level or at the level of, do I trust my nephew's platoon commander? Yes. Do I trust my nephew's brigade commander? Yes. Do I trust his division commander? Yes. What happens at the higher political echelon than the institutional structures? I think people want to believe and have the sense need to believe and have the sense that they're going to push to believe. And towards that end, yes, this unity government is very much a step in the right direction. To have an insight into a West Bank Palestinian view of this week's Hamas attack, I speak now to Dr. Ibrahim Haru. On October the 7th, Hamas initiated a significant military operation into Israeli territory involving rocket, land, air and sea attacks. Israeli casualties have surpassed, as of when we record, 1,200 people, including 120 soldiers, with dozens of hostages taken into Gaza. When you heard of that attack. What was your initial thoughts and feelings? Thank you, Mr. Brown, for taking the time to interview me. Okay, b- before we, t- we talk about the Israeli lo- losses in this war, you should know that more than 1,000 Palestinians were killed by Israeli forces within the few last few days of this war. Uh, d- d- Dr. Haru, but- I- I'm Utterly coming on to that. I I really am. I just want to get a sense for the listeners of the podcast how you felt uh, when you heard of the Hamas attack. There is a humanitarian crisis actually happening now in Gaza because of the Israeli bombing and the blockade of of the Gaza Strip. But I just want to take us through a logical timestamp. Okay, okay. I'm actually very sad about the humanitarian crisis in both Israel and Palestine. But as media that Israeli government use propaganda to change the narrative and to demonize the Palestinian practices, to dehumanize the Palestinian people and their demands. But as a Palestinian, as a academic Palestinian, I feel sad about both people both civilians who were killed in both Israel and Gaza Strip. So we, we should make this balance when we look at the conflict and we should be objective when we report the news about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Do Palestinians feel forgotten by the international community? These conflicts between Israel and Palestine have had a devastating impact on the civilian population in both Gaza Strip and West Bank, leading to the loss of lives, widespread destruction, and a real humanitarian crisis. So the situation in Gaza remains highly significant concern for the international community. Efforts to address this issue and achieve a long-term resolution is important, but progress remains challenging due to the complex political security and the humanitarian aspect of the conflict. So as Palestinians, we call the international community to support our people for the humanitarian crisis, for the the civilian population in both 
Gaza Strip and West Bank. Doctor, you talked about the international community. I I know there were many flashpoints this summer in the West Bank, which some people say this is the reason why Hamas launched this devastating and unprecedented uh, attack. That the the situation in the West Bank is what kind of highlighted the sense of hopelessness which many Palestinians feel. You're currently in Hebron. Can you just take us through what happened this summer uh, and and maybe how that contributed to Hamas launching the attack? To answer this, your question, we need to look at the history of conflict by starting the key points in the history of Israeli wars against Palestine include the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, the Six-Day War in 1967, the October War in 1974, the First Intifada, the Second Intifada, wars against Gaza, including Operation Summer Rains in 2006, Operation in 2008, 2012, 2014, and 2018. So the last war was in 2021, Israel-Gaza conflict as a result of eviction of Palestinian families from the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in Jerusalem. I think this war is a result of the history of wars conducted by Israeli forces against Palestinian people. Dr. Haroub, the world has been shocked by the attack on Israel and the invasion, but also by the ferocity that many of those Hamas fighters have displayed towards innocent civilians. Do you not think that has damaged the cause of Palestinian statehood with the fact that brutally on video we have seen the slaughter and or the aftermath of the slaughter of innocent Israeli civilians? Okay, you you talk about the image of Palestinian people in the eye of uh, international community. I I think solidarity is very important for Palestinians. But when it comes to our lives, when it comes to our humanitarian crisis, I think you should differentiate between media and reality. And we need reality more than media. Now, Israeli use propaganda to change the narrative. You should ask yourself why Palestinian attack Israeli because Israel prevent initial needs for Palestinian. They don't allow them to even take the advantage of electricity services and water, health care and so on. You should ask yourself why this happened and why Gaza Strip is now under attack. Just before we, we come back on to the situation in Gaza, so the listeners at home who maybe aren't that aware of the detail of the Israeli presence in the West Bank, can you describe um, Hebron? I, I believe Hebron is fundamentally split into two parts. There is one part which is run by the Palestinian Authority. Another one was controlled by Israeli forces. What does that mean on a day-to-day basis if you are a Palestinian? Let's say you want to go to Ramallah or to Jenin. Actually, as a Palestinian live in Hebron city, I'm not allowed to travel to Jerusalem, to Ramallah, and even to Bethlehem. They try to control all the cities in West Bank. The Palestinian Authority has no control over the territories, but 
In Hebron, the situation is very different. We have two communities. We have the original Palestinian community, and the other one is the settlement around Hebron city. So they try to separate our land, our territories in West Bank into two large communities. We, now we have more than 700,000 Israeli settlers in West Bank, and this is difficult situation. If Israeli government want to find peace, they easily can achieve or implement the two-state solution. I think the war in Gaza now is as a result of these restrictions without the freedom of, for Palestinians to express their opinions and to live in peace in one state, their own state. With the current Israeli siege of Gaza, how closely are West Bank Palestinians been able to, to follow the ensuing tragedy that's happening there with the relentless Israeli bombing? And we heard yesterday that Israel was bombing Rafah, the border post between Gaza Strip and Egypt. Yeah, we, we have internet access and I can follow the news with social media, but as Palestinian, we are not allowed to disseminate our content, especially on social media. You are not allowed to write, to post about the suffering of your people. Israeli government tried to use propaganda to change the narrative. They tried to demonize Palestinian people and do dehumanize the Palestinian practices, but we still believe in media as a soft power to convey our message to the world, to the global and international community. Dr. Harup, don't you think though, and I know I, I've mentioned this before, that the scale of the savagery of the attack, so I'm not talking about the military invasion, I, I'm talking about the way that innocent civilians were cut down by Hamas fighters, that this has destroyed a level of sympathy that, let's say, people who are just casually aware of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict will see this as just Palestinians wrong, okay. Israelis victims. First, you should differentiate between assumptions and facts. This is your assumption that oh, the Palestinian killed. Absolutely. But I'm, I'm also looking at the press, that people around the world are astounded by the images that they've seen. Yeah, uh, this is the game of media. I told you this is the game of media and Israel state, let's say, not control. They influence other global and international media outlets. So as Palestinian, we need to mobilize international community and to promote solidarity with the Palestinian people. You, you know the, about the fake news, sometimes manipulation of facts, manipulation of news, but you need to see the full picture of the truth. This is the point that sometimes media don't convey the full picture. I think they try to frame our narrative one side, they don't show you the full picture of reality. What level of support do you think that Hamas has with the average Gazan? Support for what? There were elections 
some time ago in Gaza. Not everybody in Gaza voted for Hamas. Hamas has been in power there for quite some time. Do you believe that the way that they want to prosecute the war against Israel is popular with the average Gazan? Now the Palestinian Authority control the government in Gaza. Hamas is one political party among other Palestinian political parties. So I think we, we shouldn't look at Hamas as the only party that controls Gaza Strip, that we should differentiate between government and political parties. Hamas has a popular image and positive image in the eye of Palestinian people, but it is one political party among other political Palestinian parties. If and when Israeli troops do invade Gaza and they're going yeah. door to door, snap decisions are going to be made as to who is a terrorist, who is not, who is Hamas, who is a civilian, etc. And those distinctions are going to be blurred at best. And I'm worried for the Palestinian people that the retribution which is going to be rained upon them by the Israeli state is going to be brutal. We are seeing massive internal displacement within Gaza because of the Israeli bombing. We have seen, as of yesterday, six Palestinian journalists killed. We have seen emergency response units being targeted. We've seen over a thousand Palestinians already dead because of the aerial attack. I'm gravely concerned. Okay. I think when Israeli soldiers kill a Palestinian, they don't think that he is Hamas or jihadi or ordinary people. They just kill Palestinian because he is Palestinian. And they believe that there is a demographic war between Palestinian and Israeli. So I think, as I understand your question, that how can we protect ourselves as Palestinian as a result of Hamas? Action. I think that we need to get solidarity from the international community and we utilize media platforms to promote our narrative, to make people know about the real situation in Palestine, in Gaza Strip, in West Bank. And this is a real task for both Palestinian leadership and Palestinian people. I'm worried, though. I'm worried for the Palestinian people that because of the images, you said it could well be fake news, but I do not believe it's fake news. But I'm worried that at least initially, the international opinion is against Hamas and for understandable reasons. And the world is at the moment conflating Hamas with the whole of the Palestinian people. So many people throughout the world will understand the initial Israeli response, because what was done over the weekend was, was so heinous, that there needs to be a clear distinction between Hamas and the Palestinian people. And at the moment, there isn't for many people. It's harrowing to see the images of Palestinian families being told to evacuate, but to evacuate where, when the border is sealed, that Israel has cut off food, fuel, electricity, etc. 
I, I read that the power station in Gaza is due to run out of fuel today. So remaining electricity w- will be cut off. This is a humanitarian crisis, not even not only in the making, it's happening right now. And because of the images of what people saw at the weekend, people will say throughout the world, the Israeli response is justified. And this is creating a massive humanitarian crisis. And this is before invasion. I think there has to be a clear denunciation of Hamas and what they have done. So at least the world can see that Hamas doesn't speak for all Palestinian people. I think this is a a key part of uh, moving forward whilst Gaza readies itself for an Israeli invasion, surely. I think when we talk about justification about Israeli practices, this is a a big mistake. And I think Hamas is not responsible for this situation the circumstances and the Israeli practices. Israeli forces killed children, killed kids, and they pose a restriction on Palestinian people. So they are responsible about this difficult situation. For the international community, we are victims. Also, that you see in solidarity in the street in, in UK and USA and other countries, so you you recognize the fact that Palestinian people and Palestinian issue is just and the, they they need peace and they need the solidarity. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. אנחנו שומעים על סיפורי הזוועה ועל סיפורי הגבורה. סיפורי הזוועה אומרים הכל עליהם. מואב ורדי is a familiar face on Israeli TV. He's the head of the foreign news desk at Israel's public broadcaster Can 11 in Jerusalem. 
where he hosts the daily news show, The World Today. Moab, yeah. could you please explain to us the political situation in Israel today? You have a government of national unity called, without stating the obvious, but I have to state it, what was the reason for this unprecedented call today? First of all, it's pretty obvious now that following what Hamas has done on Saturday, Israel had to go for a large-scale operation and very different one from uh, all the uh, operation that Israel took against Hamas in the past 15 years. Because in the past 15 years, Israel went uh, for an operation in Gaza in order to hit Hamas for the purpose of deterring him from trying to uh, attack again, but not aiming at uh, eliminating its military power or to dismantle Hamas as a as a ruler in Gaza. And now this has changed dramatically. And therefore, the goal of, the, uh, of this war in Gaza is to erase its military power and to topple Hamas. And to achieve that, Israel would have to use a very different scale of military power, very different from the operations in the past. It will cause much more casualties on our side, much more casualties in the Gaza side, it's a war. It's no more an operation. And for a war, you need a unity government of a war like that because you need a consensus. You need a wide public consent. There was a need for a unity government. Can you tell us and explain to us the composition of the war cabinet? Who is part of that and who is excluded? Which parties? Okay, so this unity government, or whatever it's called, is the basic Netanyahu coalition plus the party of Benny Gantz, which called Hamachanea Mamlachti. So Yair Lapid, which is the largest opposition party, is out of this government. But Benny Gantz is the number two opposition party in Israel, and he joins Netanyahu. Now, the cabinet is consists of two bodies. There is a, the basic cabinet with something like 15 members. So the thing is that, that Benny Gantz was willing to join only with one condition, that he will be part of a small war cabinet that will convince only Netanyahu, himself, Benny Gantz, his number two in the party, Gary Eisenkot, former uh, chief of, army chief of staff, and Ron Dermer, the senior minister of uh, Netanyahu. And that's what he got. So we have the routine cabinet, which is entitled to take decisions by the law. If you want to go for a war, you need the cabinet decision. But for the more tactical things during the war, they form these war cabinets and they are running the war. Has the speed of the formation of the national government come as a surprise? The lower speed, you mean? It was very low speed. So you believe this should have happened before? Of course. It was obvious it, it should have been done. It was obvious it will be done. But Netanyahu kind of moved very slowly about it. No one knows why we have some assumptions. Maybe he fears his partners that were left out of this small war cabinet, like Bezalel Smotrich. He is the head of the number two coalition party up to the Likud party. And he has been seeing himself as a part of this forum who has to run the war. And end of the day, he, did, he is not in it. So maybe Netanyahu moved very slowly out of fear to 
to upset his coalition partners. Maybe it's because there are rumors here that maybe it's because uh, his wife, Sarah, really didn't want Gantz and uh, Eisenkot and tried to force him not to do it. I don't know. But it is very widely perceived here that uh, for some reason, and not for a good reason, Netanyahu formed his cabinet only on the fifth day of the war. It's something that could have been done three days ago. Nobody knows how long this operation is going to take. Is the Israeli population fortified against, let's say, thousands of Israeli losses and the humanitarian price that it's going to have to dole out to the people of Gaza when Hamas or if Hamas is destroyed? First of all, I don't know where you got your numbers from. I don't think this is close to any uh, amount that, that, that is being discussed now. And it will not be anywhere close to uh, the amount of casualties that Israel suffered in Yom Kippur War, not to mention 48 War, and maybe even not in, in, the, in the Lebanon War. So well, I suppose, to call, well, but, well, it, but it, we're, not talking, we're not talking these numbers. Okay. You are way off uh, the, the... Okay, the, and, and I suppose the, the, it depends exactly when hostilities are de declared to be over. Because we can look at the continued conflict between Israel and, and Palestine. There's a strong argument to say that it's never ended since 1948. There's been times of flare-up. That'd be one way of looking at it. Of course, you're right. But Israel is going to concentrate effort, manpower, and firepower on Gaza. One thing that can't be denied is that there will be loss of life. There will be loss of civilian life. Sure. But also, sure. uh, the Gazans sure. have no water, electricity. They do not control the skies. They have nowhere sure. to go. There is going to be a humanitarian sure. cost effort which needs to be seen to by the Israeli state. Is Israel prepared to give bread and water to Gazans after it has fundamentally destroyed that Palestinian area? Yeah, so first of all, Israel is not aiming at destroying Gaza or at killing as many Palestinians uh, it possibly can. No, this is not the goal. The goal is to destroy Hamas organization. Or the, the uh, you cannot destroy the idea of Hamas, right? But the, uh, the practical ability of Hamas to rule and to be able to hold the effective military power. This is the aim. Now, of course, it's going to be achieved with mass casualties on the Gaza side. No one can deny it. And with large amount of Israeli casualties, I think that because what happened in Saturday was so extreme in terms of atrocities, barbarians, they are like butchers, right? It's something that we never witnessed. It's something like the pogroms against the Jews in 19th century Russia. So the Israelis are like, say, okay, no more, no more. We pay whatever price we need to pay, but no more. Now, it's a question whether it will come to a point where the, the goal has not been achieved yet, the destroyer of Hamas, but the humanitarian crisis will be at a level that the international community would not be able to turn his eyes away. So this is, this is the question, right? Whether we, we will come to a point where the international community say, would say, look, our Israeli friends, we understand your need to destroy Hamas, but we cannot accept the toll of such uh, immense, innocent uh, casualties mm -hmm. on the Palestinian side. That's the question. 
US Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to visit Israel to discuss the uh, military support the US can provide. How important is that show of solidarity? And what discussions are ongoing to create safe passages for innocent civilians in Gaza? First of all, the show of support is important in terms of the, the symbolic mention. And I think that there's something that has to be discussed. First of all, the amount of uh, credibility to launch uh, strikes on Gaza with inevitable casualties among uh, civilians. And number one, number two, what can be done with a humanitarian crisis that is quite uh, obviously going to come and whether or not humanitarian aid will be allowed into Gaza and stuff like and intelligence cooperation and military assistance by the, uh, by the United States for Israel. But most of all, it's like a show of support and a chance for a very close consultations between, uh, between U.S. and Israel. Michael McCall, the chairman of the U.S. Foreign Affairs Committee, revealed that Israel had been warned by Egypt three days before the attack. Why didn't Mossad pick up on this massive planned uh, attack on Israel and its people? Yeah, first of all, in the case of Gaza, it's a job of Shin Bet, like the FBI. No doubt it's a, it's a great failure. We still do not know exactly what are the details of this early warning that the Egyptians provided Israel with three days before the attack and at what degree it has been conveyed to Israel. Apparently not to the prime minister, but maybe it's to a lower military rank. I think that the, the answer to your question is that the word, I would say, the convention, the, the concept that Israel has been holding for a very long time, which claims that Hamas is not going to wage war on Israel or is not willing for such a brutal act as it did on Saturday because Hamas, because it contradicts its interests. Hamas' interest which is to stay in power, to be able to run Gaza along the fundamental Islamic nature of Hamas. Hamas is also government, not, it is not just a terror organization. And when you have this concept in mind, so deeply rooted, then it's very hard to take the data and to uh, extract the conclusion that Hamas is about to wage war. It might be the case that the Israeli intelligence knew or saw what's going on, but they failed to draw the right conclusion. In other words, if there are constantly threats to the Israeli state of a high volumes, it could well be hard to differentiate between what then becomes chatter and a real threat, a one which has real organization because there are so many threats against Israel. So I understand... Uh, that confusion. But it does point to a breakdown of just raw intelligence, though, doesn't it? What do you mean? The Israeli secret services, and I'll use the word plural, is seen as, if not the best, in terms of intelligence and turning people on the ground. If it's not the best in the world, it's one of the best. So this does point to a failure of human intelligence, that it's intelligence operatives who have infiltrated Hamas aren't as good as what Shimbet thought and or not in the correct operational bit of Hamas that 
Israel did not see this attack coming? Yeah, first of all, it's a proof that intelligence is limited. Look at Pearl Harbor, right? The Americans failed to get to recognize the threats coming, knocking on but, their door. But that um, was a different world 80 plus years ago. But I, I take the analogy. Yeah, look at the Ukrainians, right? They failed to understand that the Russians are going to attack the next morning. Okay. Anyhow. Um, Netanyahu um, made an address to the nation this evening. Uh, what did he say in that address? And how do you think that address has been received? Well, the classic Netanyahu, he, uh, he talked about the brutality of Hamas and the heroism uh, and the courage that the Israeli citizens and soldiers showed in uh, combating this awful attack by Hamas. And he's talking with a biblical terminology about everything. And we will win and we will overcome and we will defeat this monster. And But I found it very new shallow because he did not express any responsibility or sense of responsibility to the fact that was a great, huge failure here that led to this tragedy. Why? I, I don't want him to say I'm responsible and I'm resigned. Okay, no. But yet he did not express anything regarding letting people feel that he is feeling responsible for what has happened. This is the main flaw of, of his speech. I think that many Israelis feel the same as I do about it, as I just uh, said. But uh, Israel is very polarized. So I think that it might be the case that there is a decent portion of Israelis who feels that uh, Netanyahu is not uh, the, the one to blame for what had happened. It's the military, it's the generals, it's the intelligence, it's the security organizations. But I found it very troubled. And it's a... Uh, Third time Netanyahu is speaking to the public. He never takes questions. I can't imagine an American president in such a situation uh, only give a one-sided statement with, with no questions from the journalists. And he did not express anything about something like an empathy to the pain, to the rage, to the frustration. But okay, that's Netanyahu. Moavadi, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. And I really appreciate it on such a busy day and a busy work sure. day for you that you found yeah. the time to speak to us on the podcast. Hopefully we can speak to you again and catch up with you to yeah. see exactly what Israeli public opinion is on the impending invasion and war against Hamas. Mohammed Mansura is an educator and a teacher originally from the West Bank. Mohammed, the world is in shock because of the, the scale and the ferocity of the Hamas attack on Israel at the weekend. But I think what's important for people to understand before we go into the detail of that is a little bit about you. You are a Palestinian that wasn't even born in Palestine. Where were you born and why did your birth have to take place outside of Palestine? Okay, that is probably a question can be thoroughly answered by my dad. <laughs> he used to work as an engineer, agriculture engineer in Saudi Arabia. He went there to seek a better life for the family before he decided to come back during the Intifada, the first Intifada. At that time, it was hard because um, my aunt and dad's relatives uh, were um, on their own in the West Tank and the situation was escalating back then and so he decided to come back to support family to be with them in that hard time 
because of the, was it the Nakba 1948, the expulsion of Palestinians from what is now seen as the state of Israel to the West Bank and to Gaza. Was your family part of that expulsion? Because there is a large Palestinian diaspora throughout the world. I cannot see any Palestinian family exempted from this diaspora. My dad left Palestine uh, after the 1967 Naksa. It's probably the six-day war between uh, Israel and Arab countries back then. And at that time, uh, everyone was disappointed. So they are seeking a new life. And because of the ongoing harassments on the ground, land confiscation was very hard for many young people to start a good life in that time. So my dad was one of them. So he decided to leave to, to the Gulf region to to find a job. He had received good education in Palestine. We used to have amazing schools and universities back then. And he's a graduate of one of the elite schools, agricultural colleges in Palestine, in the north of West Bank. And after he got his, certif- his certificates, he decided to seek a place and find a job. And he always narrates his story of leaving Palestine and finding another place to start to have their dreams come true, to start the, something for the family and back up the ones who remained in, in, in my grandparents' land. During that time, two of my uncles were killed by Israelis, one in Lebanon 1981 during the Israeli invasion to, to Lebanon. Another one also was killed in, in Jordan. That was in late 70s. So when the Intifada came, he saw no escape from going back with us to his land and to be with who remained from his family. It was a very hard time for him. He's, he's 81 years old and he still talks about that experience with pain. Every house, every Palestinian house has a story. Mm-hmm of being distressed, lost a member or jail or injury. Mohammed, just very briefly, tell us how that was for you when you first went back to the West Bank. And, and also, what was the military situation there? Oh, yeah. It was actually my dad went back in 1987. I was two years old. I barely can remember some memories. But back then, it was the outbreak of the first Intifada, And my dad was was regularly chased by Israeli police to deport him and we with him actually because at that time we didn't have the the permanent residence rights but after the eight years of flying to different departments we managed to get it in 1996 that I was probably in the second grade of school back then West Bank was under the Israeli administration you aware about the history of that region during that time. Before that time, it was under the... It was very hard uh, during that time. Clashes between Palestinian unarmed rebellions against the occupation and the Israeli soldiers. I think when we got our uh, residency permit, it was the Oslo Accords in action, and it was the arrival of the PA, the Palestinian Authority, back then. So uh, I, I can remember from that time until 2000, it was a peaceful time between Israelis and Palestinians. And after that, the second father came in and things changed. What was it like living under the Intifada? You, you, you're a young man. 
were you involved in that struggle? Yeah, I was mainly protected by my family. I was not allowed to go by myself to the street. I remember something still lunges in my memory all these years. It was the tear, the tear gas tear thing. I think one of the Israeli soldiers threw one on our, our balcony and stayed for months. He used to cry all every day. My sister and I, from the effect of that gas tear bomb, I remember lots of people, young people, older than me at that time, died. So people went to jail. I remember our neighbors. They had two of their sons still. It was dismay. It was catastrophe the way it was in the Nexa in 1967 or 1948. It was unrest for everyone. I remember there was no safe place around. Usually my aunt used to take us to the school and bring us back. And my dad was very keen on keeping us from posting danger. Let's move to this weekend. Where were you when you heard the news of the Hamas attack? That night I was in the library doing a short report for one of my courses. And I went back and slept and in the early morning. I, was, I received lots of messages in WhatsApp. You turn on the TV and see what's going on. It was a total surprise for everyone, including me. I was seeing the uh, mass resistance breaking the siege and going out to the nearby settlement, killing soldiers. Mainly, was lots of shocking images coming from that area. At that time, I was not leaving. I was watching on TV. Mainly the the uh, Arabic media outlets, Al Jazeera Arabic, and I was also reading stuff on BBC and making sure that I was not a dream or a nightmare or something. And to be honest, no one expected this, including any Palestinian. It's not a surprise for, for Western communities or Israel. It's a surprise for everyone, including us Palestinians. This is the first time in history such a um, thing happened. Do you condemn the ferocity of the Hamas attack? If there is someone to blame on this sequence, it's the far-right government by the Israeli administration. It's Netanyahu and Ben-Gafir and Smotrich's far-wing leaders in Israel. They are taking the lead for the last couple of years. And the policy they have applied on people of Gaza has resulted in this. I think they need to revisit their policy. They are putting 2 million people in this open-air jail, and it's really hard to think, because if you look at the difference between the occupier and the occupied, and people have been there in Gaza for the last 18 years or so under total blockade and siege, and it's probably, some people might see it as a natural the action, which is the action they received for the last uh, 15 or 18 years, you need to think of what brought people to do this in, in the first place. But I suppose, as somebody who is sympathetic to, not sympathetic, I'm a supporter of a two-state solution, and I have been since about the age of eight, mm-hmm. and I'm 54 now. It's hard for many people throughout the world to be able to disentangle the legitimate aspirations of Palestinians, whether in Gaza or the West Bank, to have their own functioning state. And if Israel controls the water, electricity, 
and the skies. This is not a, a, a functioning state. It just isn't. Okay. And then when you think of the blockade of Gaza and the way that there are Israeli checkpoints all over the West Bank and only 31% of the West Bank is actually controlled by the Palestinian Authority. And out of that 31%, it's 167 different parcels of land. It's not a functioning state. No. So I think there is a legitimate anger that the Palestinian people have against the Israeli state and the fact that the Oslo peace accords, there was definitely a start to a movement to a Palestinian state. And I would say that Israel broke that agreement. Israelis might disagree, but either which way, but there is not a Palestinian state in 2023. That's a fact. But does that generational, multi-generational trauma of being dispossessed and then not having your own state to call home justify the multiple instances of savagery that Hamas perpetrated against innocent Israeli civilians this weekend? And most people throughout the world would say no. Do you want me to answer this question? As, as I told you, I think wars always bring destruction and lots of innocent people go as scapegoats. Look at what happens in Gaza after these actions. You think about 200 children were killed along with innocent families. Their, their houses destroyed, and this is not the first time. The last 20 years, every three or four years, there's a strike, a number of strikers on Gaza killing people. And what do you expect from people who lost their, their families and their houses and their dreams? And these are the products of this ongoing violence from Israelis on Gaza. I think, as I told you, no one wants to see innocent people killed from both sides. But you need to think of the bigger picture. Just on that bigger picture, Mohammed, why did Hamas launch this attack now, do you think? Thinking of the bigger picture, a conventional narrative is Israel and Saudi Arabia are close to having a peace treaty. There is already one with Morocco. There's one with Egypt. Israel has a tacit peace agreement with Jordan. It seems like many of the Arab states very close to Israel and Palestine, Israel now has good relationships with. Is this one of the reasons why Hamas launched this now, to scupper that Saudi concordat with Israel, so that the Arab people on a whole are reminded of the plight of the Palestinian people? That's a very question. Here is the point you are making. Israel is seeking peace with everyone except Palestinians. They have broken all deals or accords that signed uh, and witnessed by uh, international legitimacy, international community. Look at the uh, Palestinian Authority during Yasin Arafat regime and now it's not without Palestinian regime. They have given Israel everything they asked for. You're talking about uh, security coordination, the commitment to the um, peace accords. And in every single step of that process, Israel and Israeli government mainly did not abide to the uh, agreements. And now look at them. They are seeking peace with Bahrain. Just shocked by this fact, to be honest, it's fine to have peace with other countries as long as they are happy. What is the geographical and political bond between Bahrainis and Israelis, for example? 
Israel is seeking peace with everyone and neglecting the situation inside. They are looking at Palestinians as nothing. And this can be also a reason behind the escalating violence happening these days between in Gaza. And adding to this, last things happened in Jerusalem, mainly in Al-Aqsa, most all the settlers' harassments of the places related to Muslims. This is very provocative. I think no one can turn a deaf ear to this. And the timing of this could be seen could be seen differently by different people, but could be because of that, what happened in, in Al-Aqsa Mosque, what happened during the in, in West Bank during the last 12 months. There was lots of people were killed. The Palestinians in Gaza are being bombed relentlessly by the air from the Israeli Defense Force. The IDF looks like it's poised to invade Gaza. People have been told to leave their homes and to evacuate, but evacuate to where? They have nowhere to go, actually. Exactly. They have nowhere to go. They have nowhere. Unless the Egyptians open the border properly at Rafah, they have absolutely nowhere to go. They were, they were very clear about this from the beginning. They are not going to open. They were just trying to send some humanitarian aids and Israelis. Israeli government didn't allow it to happen. And now they are cutting water supplies, electricity, and all the medical supplies as well. The situation in Gaza is worse than ever. What happens to the people of Gaza in, in the next two weeks, would you say, Mohammed? Ah, I always hope for better. But I, my aunts are in Gaza. I, I phoned them um, two days ago and yesterday I was reaching them. There was no response. I think that because of the, there is no electricity. The phones, I think they are open. I'm not sure if they have their house still standing. I hope that in the couple two weeks, some kind of international initiative, mainly led by probably Egypt, America, United States of America, they have some kind of ceasefire, some relief especially for innocent people being killed. I don't think now it's between who's paying the price, Hamas, militant groups, it's probably the um, innocent people, Gaza children. And this is a very hard situation around. I think you and all the audience can understand and can imagine just looking at the houses uh, being demolished like uh, illegal games. It's awful. It is tr- truly awful. Mohammed, thank you for, for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and giving us a, a real insight into your personal story being a, a Palestinian and your family's plight through various waves of expulsion. It gives us a little bit more of an insight into the travails that the people of Gaza, the proud people of Gaza are going through and will have to endure with this imminent Israeli onslaught. Thank you for coming on to the show, sir. Thank you, Brown. If you just can add something before we close, something really astonishes me and amazes me at the same time, which is the double standard reaction of the world regarding what's going on. When was Israeli killed everyone shouting about it and on the other hand, many Palestinians have been killed over the last 20 years and all for this, so the last 75 years. And we haven't seen this outrage and flagrant condemnation of what's going on for what has happened to Palestinians. Now, different 
to talk about Israelis. I told you, wars always bring destruction and killing and death. And no one needs this. No one wants this. But I hope that the world will, will look equally to Palestinians the way they look at what's happening to the Israelis. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.